Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our World Lead Today explosions. Rocking Kiev, Ukraine this afternoon, a city with a population of almost 3 million people, roughly the size of Chicago. Air raid sirens becoming a familiar sound in Kiev, just as the Biden administration warns the Russian military could take a, quote, more aggressive approach toward capturing that capital city. A senior Pentagon official saying today that Russian forces are growing frustrated that their progress has slowed, partially because of tougher-than-expected resistance from the Ukrainian people. That warning from the Pentagon seemingly backed up by new satellite images showing a Russian military convoy stretching for nearly 17 miles, one that has advanced to the outskirts of Kyiv. CNN's Matthew Chance finding a different Russian convoy destroyed earlier today on a bridge leading into Kyiv, smoking remnants of military vehicles surrounded by unexploded grenades, and the bodies of dead Russian soldiers. And a first today during this conflict, Russian and Ukrainian delegations meeting for talks, which concluded without any immediate breakthroughs, the talks taking place in neighboring Belarus, just as Ukrainian government sources tell me, their intelligence indicates that Belarus is preparing to join Russia in attacking Ukraine. Belarus already is allowing Russia to use their territory for pre-invasion military staging and allowing Russian troops to cross their border into Ukraine. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announcing earlier today that the U.S. Embassy in Minsk, Belarus, has suspended operations as the Biden administration warns Belarus not to involve itself any further in Russia's war on Ukraine. And tensions ratcheting up even further moments ago, the U.S. confirmed it has asked 12 Russian diplomats to leave the country. CNN's Clarissa Ward starts off our coverage from Kyiv, Ukraine, where she witnessed Ukrainian citizens eager to defend their homeland, including making their own Molotov cocktails. The people of Kiev are mobilizing. Across the capital, volunteers are pouring in, building up the city's defenses with whatever they can. Women bring in empty bottles to be made into Molotov cocktails. The leaders of this militia say Ukraine will win this war, emboldened by recent successful operations to repel Russian forces. One shows us his passport. I am Ivanov. I am originally Russian, he says, but no Russian boots will stand here. Do you have a message for President Putin? Putin. It's a popular sentiment on the streets. This man's sign is too vulgar to translate. Another billboard warns invading forces. Russian soldiers leave. How will you look your children in the eye? Ukraine has borne the brutality of this invasion with patient grit and determination. Outside every supermarket, there are long lines and scarce supplies. But no one is complaining. 
it's amazing to see the optimism of people here. They've been waiting in this line for about 40 minutes to get into the supermarket, but still they're saying everything's going to be okay. You can feel a, a growing confidence among people that they do have a chance to defeat Russia. In an eastern suburb of the city, Raisa Shmatko's front yard has turned into a staging area. So you can see they're collecting things to donate to people, sleeping bags, sleeping mats, pickles, foods. Shmatko is a grandmother and a retired economist. Now she spends her days preparing for battle. Okay. This is where they make the Molotov cocktails? She says she's going to show us them now. These are the only weapons she has, but she says she's ready to fight. Let those Russian shits come here, she says. We are ready to greet them. How did you learn how to make Molotov cocktails? Google helped, she tells me. You Googled it. Of course, she says. If Russian forces push into the capital here in Kiev, what will you do? We will beat them. They won't come, she tells us. I believe in our Ukraine. I believe in Ukrainian people. Moments later, she's off. Russian forces are still moving forward. And there is much work to be done. And so now, Jake, the question becomes, how long does that resilience, that determination, that defiance, that courage and optimism last? Because there are real concerns now being voiced by U.S. officials as well that things could get a lot worse here in Kiev. You mentioned that huge column, uh, some three miles long uh, of Russian armory, which is bearing down towards the capital. Also, uh, we have been warned about the possibility of Russian forces completely encircling the city, cutting off all humanitarian aid, food, and beginning uh, what one would presume to be a much uglier bombing campaign. So you're seeing a lot of strength and defiance, um, but there's also still a sense that things could get much worse, Jake. Clarissa, we also saw residents of one central Ukrainian town seem to block a Russian convoy earlier today. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is just one of many examples, Jake, that that we're finding on social media every day and geolocating. This was in a town in central Ukraine, and you can see these men basically blocking this column of 40 armored vehicles with their cars. They're telling them in unison that they are united together, um, that they will not move. And eventually, what's amazing is that those Russian vehicles, the drivers get out, and then the Russian vehicles actually are forced to, to reverse, presumably to find another route in. And we're seeing examples of this kind of bravery all the time, Jake. There's another video we saw where a man literally climbs onto a tank and then kneels in front of it trying to stop the tank in its tracks. And in the town of Berdyansk today, which is in the southeast of the country near Mariupol, which was completely taken now by Russian forces, you saw this extraordinary sight of a group of people carrying Ukrainian flags, going to the town hall, standing in the face of Russian soldiers, and singing the Ukrainian anthem, Jake. Larissa Ward in Kiev, Ukraine, thank you and stay safe. Here to discuss former Secretary of Defense under President Trump, Mark Esper. He's also the author of a new book coming out, a memoir called Sacred Oath, a sacred oath. It comes out in May. Uh, Secretary Esper, thanks for joining us. So just in the last few hours, CNN teams have heard 
explosions across Kyiv. We know that Russia has been frustrated by how much resistance uh, their forces have faced from Ukrainians. But do you think ultimately it is inevitable that Kyiv will fall to Russian forces? Well, first of all, good afternoon, Jake. It's, uh, it's good to be with you. And let me just say, uh, geopolitically, it's clear that the post-Cold War era in Europe is over. So the notion by anybody, the hope that somehow through economic engagement, uh, Putin can be uh, uh, convinced to play by international rules and norms is, is probably completely extinguished by now, or at least should be. And as I said uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on another network before the invasion, he's already managed to do three things that we knew he didn't want to do. First was to better unify NATO, second, to have more NATO troops on his borders, and third, to really push the Ukrainian people uh, further into the arms of the West. And it's apparent that after five days of fighting, those three things are even worse. Now, your question, uh, can he take Kyiv? Maybe. We'll see. I think the uh, inspired leadership of President Zelensky has been overwhelming. Uh, the fight and grit of the people of Ukraine has been very impressive. So he may make it into the city, but I will tell you, urban warfare is tough. Uh, many years ago, when I commanded an infantry unit in the United States Army, we trained and, and look, it can, you can consume a lot of troops very easily in just a small area. And if the Ukrainian people are going to fight uh, a city of three million people, they may get into Kyiv. Uh, they won't be able to hold it. And frankly, they may never get out. Uh, it'll be brutal fighting. And I think right now time is on the side of the Ukrainians. You expressed some skepticism that, that economic sanctions and the, those kinds of uh, punishments will, will work on, on Putin, at least in terms of ever, uh, him ever hoping to be back in, among the community of nations. What do you think President Biden and the West should do? Is there anything at this point that can stop Putin? Well, we don't know for sure whether or not they'll ultimately be successful. I think at this point in time, Putin is in the fight he's committed. He has to follow through, and we could talk about what that might look like. But I think uh, my complaint would be that we've we haven't imposed enough sanctions quickly enough, and and that may be uh, because of some reluctance by the Europeans. I don't know for sure, but we should be immediately placing all the economic and financial sanctions we can on Putin himself, on the oligarchs, and of course on the energy sector. And I understand that folks in Europe and maybe here in the United States are concerned about the impacts it might have on our our own economies. But look, these innocent people in Ukraine are are dying. It could get much much worse. Uh, Putin has threatened security in Europe and, and the international order. I think we can sacrifice a little bit, pay a little bit more higher prices at the gas pump this summer if it means uh, possibly curtailing this, uh, this tragedy in Ukraine. The White House today uh, restated its opposition to creating a no-fly zone over Ukraine. That's because, obviously, it would, it would require NATO aircraft, including U.S. aircraft, to, to be there to disrupt Russia's air operations some Ukrainian leaders and some people in Congress, Congressman uh, Adam Kinzinger, for example, say that NATO needs to follow through on a no-fly zone in order to give Ukraine forces a fair chance against Russia. Obviously, the risk is that American pilots would be killed. Uh, what would you recommend? At this point, I would not recommend a no-fly zone. I recognize the obvious benefits. I doubt that we could get all of our NATO allies on board to support that. Uh, but that said, uh, and the reason being is obviously could result in a major conflict between the United States and Russia and really broaden this war in, in ways we don't want to see it go. That said, I would not take the military option off the table. We don't know where this is going to go. If the Ukrainians continue to fight with the true grit that they're showing and the Russian, uh, are unable, Russians are unable to meet their objectives on the ground, you could see Putin grow, growing increasingly frustrated and result in what is traditional Russian 
warfare, which would be the heavy shelling of civilian areas, aerial bombardments, etc. At that point, the devastation could be so enormous, uh, the civilian deaths so enormous as well that the moral outcry would compel us to do to make that move. So I would not take that option off the table. Frankly, I think uh, President Biden and other Western leaders should message that to to uh, Putin right now not to go that way. Uh, for, for our viewers uh, who might remember, you were ultimately fired by President Trump after he lost the election. Something interesting that came out, uh, ABC, ABC News' Jonathan Carl obtained a memo when he was working on his book, Betrayal. It was a memo reportedly circula- circulating around the White House in October of 2020, penned by Johnny McEntee, trying to come up with reasons why Trump would fire you. One of them is very relevant to what's going on today. It said that you, quote, focused the Department of Defense on Russia, directing in last September to sprint at them and to look at every facet of competition with Moscow. So why would your desire to fend off a hostile foreign government like Russia, why would that be seen as a negative within the Trump White House? I don't know, Jake. I can't explain it. Uh, you know, I, I elaborate a little bit on this in my book, uh, for sure, my memoir. I was clearly focused on Russia and China. And, you know, I was Secretary of Army before I was Secretary of Defense. And during that time, we we put more forces into Europe. We had one of the largest exercises ever, a return of forces to Europe during my tenure. And uh, we did. We tried to modernize the United States Army to deal with uh, heavy forces from China and Russia. And, of course, I carried through on some of those things as Secretary of Defense. So, I don't understand it. I, I think uh, it's very important that we stand up to autocrats and authoritarian regimes, such as those run by Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. And look, at the end of the day, uh, the international order democracy, as we know it, is under threat. It was just a few weeks ago that uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin stood side by side, shaking hands, celebrating the new partnership and issuing a joint communique that talked about uh, the West and all, all of our mm-hmm. alleged failures. And so this is what's at stake right now. And we're seeing it play out in Europe and we could very well see it out play out in Asia. And by the way, it's important to note that I think the inspired leadership of Ukraine and the uh, grit of the Ukrainian people is something that the Taiwanese people should look at. They should be preparing along the same lines to build a possible attack by China one day. So we're out of time, but I do want to get, let you have a sentence or two just to respond to the fact that your former boss, President Trump, is calling Vladimir Putin a genius. Vladimir Putin is a ruthless autocrat that we need to deal with, with strength and resolve. And we do that with our allies and partners. That's one of the things I tried to emphasize during my time. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that's the way we will we will uh, get him to stand down. And quite frankly, I think this could well this is going to be a strategic failure. And we could see him uh, be forced out of office if this goes the wrong way or the right way, whichever way you look at it. We All can right. see him forced out of office, which would be a good thing. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, I know you have a lot more you want to talk about. You're saving a lot of it for your book, and we'll have you back to talk about that. Appreciate it. It's a sacred oath. It's coming out in May. We're following the breaking news out of Ukraine, the United States, and the rest of the world uh, taking unprecedented moves to target Russia's economy. Will that pain be felt on markets around the world? Will it be felt by you? Stay with us. In our money lead today, the United States and other nations are taking unprecedented steps to try to cut off Vladimir Putin's financial power as punishment for his unprovoked, deadly attack on the sovereign nation of Ukraine. Today, the Biden administration blocked Russia's central bank from U.S. transactions. On Saturday, the U.S. joined a global coalition to try to shut down Russia's access to SWIFT, which is an international bank messaging system. CNN's Caitlin Collins 
is at the White House tracking this all for us where other crippling measures are under discussion. Amid explosions in Kyiv and talks on the border with Belarus, the West is working overtime to isolate Russian President Vladimir Putin even further today. The eyes of the world are on Ukraine and the brave people who are fighting to protect their country and their democracy. The Treasury Department announcing it's sanctioning Russia's central bank, effectively cutting the Kremlin off from its financial reserves and going after one of Putin's biggest weaknesses, his currency. These financial sanctions at the level of almost uh, financial war. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the aggressive new actions will, quote, significantly limit Russia's ability to use assets to finance its destabilizing activities. As the ruble plunged and the Moscow Stock Exchange remained closed, Putin huddled with his economic advisors. Meantime, President Biden spending over an hour on the phone with European allies amid a remarkably united response to Russia's unprovoked invasion. That call happening hours after Biden chose to largely ignore Putin's decision to place Russian nuclear forces into, quote, special combat readiness. We've seen Mr. Putin's announcement. Um, uh, We believe it's as unnecessary as it is escalatory. Secretary Austin is is comfortable with the the strategic deterrent posture of the United States. As more nations ban Russian flights from their airspace, the U.S. is making clear that there is little appetite to create a no-fly zone over Ukraine arguing it could be tantamount to a declaration of war. The president has made clear that we're not going to put boots on the ground. We're not going to put American troops in danger. So that means we're not going to put American troops in the air uh, as well. But we will work with the Ukrainians to give them the ability to uh, to defend themselves. A new CNN poll finding that 83 percent of Americans favor more economic sanctions against Russia, though only 42 percent are in favor of direct military action should the sanctions fail to work. All this coming as Biden is preparing to address the nation and the world tomorrow night during his State of the Union address. President Obama gave a speech during the worst financial crisis of our lifetime. Uh, President Bush uh, gave a speech shortly after the worst terrorist attack on our homeland ever. It's always about expressing how you're going to lead the country. And Jake, I should note that earlier when President Biden was asked if Americans should be worried about the prospect of a nuclear war, he flatly said no. That comes as the White House has said they see no reason to change their own nuclear threat levels after Putin said he was going to raise his, accusing him of once again just trying to manufacture a reason for another aggressive action on his part. Caitlin, stay with me. I I want to bring in CNN's business editor at large, Richard Quest, who's in Saudi Arabia right now. And Richard, uh, in just the last 48 hours, the U.S. cut off Russia's central bank and disconnected select Russian banks from the international bank messaging system called SWIFT. For the average person, what is the real-life impact uh, of these moves? There's going to be pain on both sides, Jake. Both sides are going to hurt, but the Russians are going to hurt a great deal more. Essentially, all these financial measures send the Russian economy into reverse just about immediately. Supply chains already, just in time, will dry up completely. They won't be able to get technology. They can't transfer money. The banks will grind to a halt. Now, they can still print money and put it in ATMs, but they're printing rubles and putting them into ATMs, and that's just inflationary. 
On the other side, of course, Jake, we are also suffering from inflation. But the effects that we will bear will be nothing compared to the Russian economy as these sanctions bite. The economy is being throttled. It'll take a bit of time, but it'll work. Caitlin, here in the U.S., a brand new CNN poll shows that Americans overwhelmingly support economic sanctions against Russia. 83% favor versus 17% opposed. But I wonder if the White House thinks those numbers are going to hold when American citizens start feeling more pain in their wallets and purses and the Russians retaliate in their own ways. Yeah, I think it's certainly been a concern of theirs because you've seen over the last few days is these the matters and the positions on certain sanctions has shifted as they are now going after SWIFT, as they are now going after the Russian Central Bank. One big question has been when it comes to energy sanctions, which obviously would hurt the Russians, but the White House understands that that would be collateral damage because it wouldn't just be a one-way street when it comes to the punishment for those sanctions. And so that's something they have not gone after in the way that some people have said that they should, but others have argued it wouldn't make sense for them to do. And it's also something that they are being very careful to do in tandem with European allies saying that Europe is very sensitive and concerned about any price spikes, any further price spikes when it comes to energy prices. And so that is something that they are being aware of. And definitely here at home, you've heard the president try to make this issue more relatable to Americans by saying, you know, it's not just the concern about the world order here and democracy, but also when it comes to energy prices here in the United States, which are already high. And the president is saying that they are trying to work to mitigate any spikes in those here at home, as they are also still trying to hold Putin accountable. And so one thing, though, on the the support for sanctions that you were seeing in this new poll, you see that it was at about 82 percent. Back in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea illegally and annexed it, the support for economic sanctions was only about 67 percent. So you're already seeing how much higher that is now. Of course, we should note a majority of Americans do not support direct military action if these sanctions ultimately fail to stop Putin. Only about 42 percent do so far, Jake, based on this poll. Richard? I think when you look at the situation, both sides are economically fragile, but one side is a great deal worse than the other. I'm here in Saudi Arabia at the moment. Let's just look at the Saudis, allies of the United States, close allies, but at the same time, major OPEC plus relationship with Russia. And that's why Saudi's finding itself in a very difficult position, Jake. On the one hand, it has to be seen, as the Crown Prince has said, to support the Allied maneuvers, but at the same time, it does not want to annoy Russia or OPEC. And how you balance that relationship is almost impossible for countries like Saudi. At some point, Saudi, the UAE, all the oil producers are going to have to come off the fence one way or the other between Russia and the United States, its allies and its partners. Kaylin, uh, the American people are going to be tuning in for Biden's State of the Union address tomorrow night, his first. Uh, it's a rare opportunity for a president to address the entire nation. Our CNN poll shows 58 percent of the American people do not trust Biden to handle the Ukraine crisis. So what's his message going to be? I think it's going to be a critically important speech for President Biden. And Jake, just look how much it's shifted over the last few weeks, because initially they had been looking at this as maybe a domestic reset to talk about what the president wants to do going forward, what his domestic agenda is going to look like, higher cost here at home when it comes to inflation. And all of that will certainly be included in this speech tomorrow. But also President Biden is going to be speaking amid this crisis and amid this invasion of Ukraine that the Pentagon has been warning about uh, the capability that Russia still has, even 
if they've been a little bit slower than they had initially predicted. And I think that is also changing the trajectory of this speech. And aides have been working to add in, of course, what he is going to say about what is happening. And it will be a bigger focus than I think they had initially expected, say, a month ago. And so everyone will be watching this speech tomorrow night to see what President Biden says, uh, of course, as they're also watching what Putin is doing in Ukraine. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, Richard Quest in Saudi Arabia. Thanks to both of you. Tomorrow night, join us for President Joe Biden's first State of the Union address, Anderson Cooper, and I will be hosting our special live coverage at 8 p.m. Eastern. A sea of humanity as thousands of Ukrainians are packing train stations, waiting for hours, desperate to get on any train out of the country. Stay with us. Back with the world lead and another train packed with Ukrainians leaving everything behind, headed for safer ground in Poland. Just minutes earlier, a chaotic scene as people begged to get on that train. Women and children were pulled up first. These are just some of the more than 500,000 refugees that the UN says have escaped Ukraine after it was invaded by Russia. Many others have been forced to wade as police held back the crowd. CNN's Scott McLean reports even more Ukrainians hope they too can escape. At the train station in Lviv, no one knows when the next train to Poland will come, but they wade in the frigid temperatures just in case. Suddenly, an announcement sends people rushing for Platform 5. Some cross the tracks to get there, but police turn them away. Please keep calm and go down the stairs, shouts the officer. How can I not panic? Let us in. My kid has a disability. He's downstairs with our bags, she tells us. We traveled three days from Berdansk. I'm nervous, another woman traveling with a toddler tells us. So how are you feeling now? This mother, pushing a stroller, says everything in just a single glance. Under the platform, it's a free-for-all that sometimes gets tense. People push their way to the front, but police allow only women and children. Men are told not to bother. This woman is offered a place on the train with her baby, but not her husband, and she won't go without him. No, I can't, she says. He has everything. He has friends there. And how will he get there? Not by train. At the top of the stairs, police usher women and children through the crowd, tossing suitcases and pulling children up by their coats. It's all a bit overwhelming for kids and for mothers. They are packing as many people as they possibly can onto these trains, but there are still many people, including women and children, who likely will not make it. This Nigerian woman who came from Kyiv two days ago is one of them. I'm overwhelmed. It's insane. I never want to be in this position in my life. You're tired. Yeah, stressed out. I couldn't sleep for days. Yeah, I'm so happy at least I could get into the train. With most Ukrainian men barred from leaving the country, the men turned away are almost entirely foreign. We, we find that taxi, but he, he told us we need a lot of money, $500, $600. For the waiting families, the next train is due a few hours later. For many who've traveled for days just to get here, it can't come soon enough. 
And that woman that you saw who was understandably distraught when she reached the train platform with her young child told me that her older child and her elderly mother were behind her in the line and she didn't want to leave them. But these are the kind of choices that people are having to make. As for the foreign men left behind, you can understand how they are feeling trapped. It is difficult to cross the border by foot or by car. Some say it's unfair that they're not allowed to board trains. Others say that it is the right thing that children go first and that they're happy to stay behind for now. Jake? All right, Scott McLean in Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you so much for that important report. Ukrainian officials described the scene in Kharkiv today as hellish. Multiple rockets exploding in residential neighborhoods targeting civilian populations would be, of course, a war crime. And CNN teams have seen even more Russian rocket launchers heading toward the front line. CNN's Fred Plykin is near Belgorod, Russia, close to the Ukrainian border, not far from Kharkiv. Fred, does it appear as though Russia is preparing for an even more aggressive attack on Kharkiv right now? Well, there certainly are some troubling signs, Jake. And you know, one of the unique things about the position that we have here is that we can see the Russians sort of maneuver their gear around the area and also to that area towards the front line in Kharkiv. And so sometimes you can sort of see what military moves they might make next. Now, one of the things that we observed tonight, literally uh, just um, say about an hour ago, was heavy artillery rocket fire going from Russian positions towards the territory of Ukraine. Of course, impossible for us to tell whether or not they're targeting Kharkiv or the area around Kharkiv, but certainly, considering this is Belgorod and Kharkiv is the next city on the Ukrainian side, that is something that is certainly highly likely. And we did also today see further additional heavy rocket launchers be deployed towards the area of the front line there. They're called Uragan rocket launchers. They have a uh, they, they can shoot about uh, 70 to 75 miles, so they certainly are a really heavy weapon. And we did see several of them cross into the territory going towards Ukrainian territory. So that could be a telltale sign. And of course, all of this coming on the same day that you had that shelling of that neighborhood in Kharkiv and certainly the battle there heating up as well. One of the other things, Jake, that we also saw, and I think it's uh, quite important, is we did actually also see a lot of broken down Russian military gear. For instance, we saw one of these Oregon rocket launchers by the wayside with soldiers tending to it, trying to get it back up and running. We also saw a howitzer that was toppled over. Not exactly sure how something like that could happen. Maybe the driver drove it to the side of the road and didn't realize that the earth was soggy. But it is something that we're noticing. Again, it's unclear whether or not that might be part of the regular attrition of an operation this size. But it's something that does stand out that you do see a lot of Russian military vehicles on this side of the border, on the Russian side of the border, having to be towed away and having to be tended to. Uh, and of course, Jake, also from our vantage point here, the Russians do still have a lot of military equipment on this side of the border, so it does seem they could drastically escalate further uh, if, if they're not making the headway that they want to, Jake. All right, Fred Plotkin in Russia, thank you so much. Stay safe. Coming up next, a CNN exclusive about a key endorsement for President Biden's Supreme Court nominee. That's next. In our politics lead, President Biden's historic pick for the U.S. Supreme Court, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She will make the rounds on Capitol Hill this week to try to get support for her pending confirmation hearings. And now CNN has learned she is getting an endorsement from a prominent and highly regarded conservative former judge. CNN's Jamie Gangel was the first with this exclusive reporting. Jamie, who is this endorsement from and will it make a difference? This is a major endorsement for the Biden White House and for Judge Jackson. It's coming from a very conservative former federal appeals court judge, Michael Ludig. And he is really considered one of the most respected conservatives in legal circles. 
And wait till you hear this endorsement. It is, to say the least, enthusiastic. Judge Ludic calls Jackson, quote, eminently qualified. He goes on to say, quote, she is as highly credentialed and experienced in the law as any nominee in history, having graduated from Harvard Law School with honors, clerked at the Supreme Court, and served as a federal judge for almost a decade. Uh, to remind our audience, Judge Ludig is also the person who became very well known in the days leading up to January 6th for a series of tweets he put out to uh, support then-Vice President Mike Pence in defying Trump because his former law clerk, John Eastman, was trying to convince Pence to overturn the election. So the judge overruled his former law clerk. So he's making a lot of news this year. And the Judge Ludig also has some choice words for Republicans. So this is very interesting. He not only called on Republicans in this statement, I would say he called out Republicans. He asks for not only bipartisan support, but he says, quote, Republicans in particular should vote to confirm Judge Jackson. He believes Republicans really prematurely criticized Biden on this pick. He thinks they are short-sighted. And there's a very interesting quote where he says, if not because they're being magnanimous, they should make a political calculation and do the right thing and confirm her. All right, Jamie Gangel, thank you for the reporting. Appreciate it. The news that parents and students in the nation's largest school district have been waiting quite some time to hear. That's next. In our health lead, we are now almost certainly just days away from the country's largest school district ending its mask mandate. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says he'll make the final call on Friday. Data in New York City is looking good statewide, too, where COVID hospitalizations among kids have dropped 80% since their peak in January. CNN's Alexandra Field reports from New York, where Big Apple residents will also soon be able to stop searching around for the va- their vaccine card before heading in to their favorite bistro. A giant leap forward and as strong a sign as any of where the pandemic stands in the U.S. Some of the largest and most mask-abiding states in the nation getting rid of school mask mandates. California's governor announcing plans to drop the mandate in schools next week, though masks will be encouraged. Oregon and Washington state will also lift school mask mandates next week, along with New York City. We have to do it in a safe way. I can't go back to closing down the city. Statewide, school mask requirements will be lifted Wednesday. Given the, the, the decline in our rates, our hospitalization, strong vaccination rates, and the CDC guidance, uh, my friends, the day has come. The latest announcements bringing more schools in line with the latest CDC guidance, which says in most of the country people can safely gather inside without masks, excluding those people who are at high risk. Tomorrow, Washington, D.C. is lifting its indoor mask mandate. Masks will be optional at the U.S. Capitol for President Joe Biden's State of the Union address. While lawmakers won't need to wear masks, there's still a question of whether travelers will continue to need to. Under consideration now, whether to lift the mask mandate for trains and stations, airports and planes, set to expire next month. Now we can all see our smiles. The easing of restrictions is bringing long-awaited relief 
At Chicago's Navy Pier, there are free rides today for showing your smile, a celebration of the lifting of the mask mandate there. We believe in the state of Illinois, the things that were, are under my control, uh, that we ought to go without masks for the time being. <laughs> More than two years after the world's first COVID case was detected, researchers say there is even stronger evidence now coming from two new preprint studies that the virus originated in animals and spread to humans in a Wuhan market in China, which underlines the need to pay close attention to environments where humans and animals interact closely. And, Jake, there is just one state left that still has an indoor mask mandate and a school mask mandate and hasn't yet announced plans to lift either. That is Hawaii. And actually, Hawaii doesn't have any area that has what is considered to be a high level of community transmission. Jake? Hmm. Alexander Field in New York. Thanks so much. More on our breaking news. We're on the ground where all the remains of a Russian convoy are smoking pieces of wreckage. Plus, we're going to talk to a Ukrainian journalist who's trying to decide if it's safe for his son and pregnant wife to stay with him or if it's time for them to get out of Ukraine. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. Hello and welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. A top Ukrainian prosecutor describes the situation in the predominantly Russian-speaking city of Kharkiv as hellish. This after Russian rockets hit at least five residential neighborhoods, killing at least one civilian and injuring 31 others. A former American general told CNN he suspects the Russians were using cluster bombs, which deliver an initial explosion and then contain multiple smaller bombs that spread over a wide area. Meanwhile, in Kiev, yet another round of air raid sirens tonight after large explosions were heard near that city's center. These satellite pictures show a large military convoy bearing down on Kiev. The Pentagon today said Russian forces are roughly 15 miles outside of the capital city and closing in. In the city of Dnipro and many other cities around Ukraine, men, young and old, line up to volunteer to fight for Ukraine. One 19-year-old telling CNN today, quote, it's better to die than to not have a home. As Matthew Chance reports for us now, the Ukrainian military may be outmanned and outgunned. But they are trying to fight fierce battles on the outskirts of Kiev to stop the Russian advance. I want to warn you, some of the images we're about to show you are disturbing. Right within the past few hours, there has been a ferocious battle here on the outskirts of Kiev. This is the front line in the battle for the Ukrainian capital. The Russian column that has come down here has been absolutely hammered. Trucks and armoured vehicles reduced to twisted metal as Ukrainian forces dig in, catching the Kremlin and its invasion force off guard. Look at this. I mean, what kind of munitions does it take to do that to a car, to a vehicle? You know, I know that I've just been to the local Ukrainian commanders here. They've been saying that they were using Western anti-tank missiles um, to, to attack these columns. Look, so recent, the battle. This vehicle is still smoking. There's still smoke coming out. Commanders like Alexander of the Ukrainian army who wouldn't give me his rank or full name. If the Russians thought they could just march into Ukrainian lands in a triumphant parade, he tells me, they were mistaken. It will never happen, he says. 
I mean, look, I mean, this is a bit of a, almost a cliche, but uh, obviously somebody's brought a memento from home, you know, and now it's uh, scorched and lying with the, the debris of their, in this case, failed attack. An attack that's left Ukrainian forces who repelled it confident, perhaps overconfident, that victory can be repeated across the country as Russian troops advance. Absolutely, Ukraine will win this war, Alexander tells me. Of course we'll win, and the Russians will rot here, he says. This vehicle here is obviously from the Russian military. It's got the letter V um, daubed on the side looking tape or in paint. That, that, I think that stands for Vostok, which is the Russian word for East, which um, implies that these military equipment they came from the eastern divisions of the Russian military. What I was saying there, look, as evidence, I don't want to show you this too much, but there's a, there's a body there. That's a Russian soldier that is lying there dead on this bridge. You can tell they're Russian because they've got this, this black and red and orange uh, St. George ribbon daubed across them, which is a sign, a symbol of the Russian army. Starter. Yeah, ammunition. Сейчас, Alexander. Oh my God, there's another one there. It's, it's terrible to see the grim inhumanity of a war. For, for the Ukrainians and of course for the Russians as well, the sacrifice that is being paid by all sides in this complete waste of life is, is, is here for us all to see. Well, Jake, there are concerns now that there may be more battles for Kiev because there has been uh, an armoured column from Russia spotted um, making its way towards the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. That column you know, full of tanks and artillery pieces, armoured vehicles stretching some three miles. And so, you know, we are about to see, I think, and this is backed up by US intelligence as well, um, a much more concerted campaign to make progress to attack and possibly to take the Ukrainian capital. Jake. Matthew, I'm, I'm struck by the confidence of that commander you spoke to and, and, and other Ukrainians who have been sharing their stories with CNN, um, given that convoy coming, the Russian convoy, and, and the fact that so many U.S. officials fear the worst is yet to come. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And it's, it's a big concern because, you know, at the moment, the, as, you, as, you, as you pointed out there, the Ukrainians are sort of flush with success. They've had some significant victories. They have had, you know, they're obviously defending their country and their cities very, very bravely indeed. Um, and that's been coupled by, you know, perhaps some tactical errors on the part of the, of the Russians as well. But the idea that that's sustainable, the idea that, that that's always going to be the case against the concerted Russian military advance from multiple directions. I mean, it's unrealistic. And so what we could be seeing soon, what the Kremlin might decide to do is really redouble or triple or quadruple its the military power that it, it throws at achieving its objectives in this country. And that'd be very bad news for everybody in this city and elsewhere. All right, Matthew Chance reporting live from Kiev. Stay safe. Thank you so much. The United Nations Refugee Agency says more than 500,000 Ukrainians have fled their home country during Russia's invasion so far. 
Many other civilians are traveling within Ukraine, just trying to get somewhere safe in the country. My next guest is Volodymyr Kondratiev. He's a journalist with Ukrainian State TV. He evacuated Kiev with his pregnant wife and his four-year-old son on Thursday. That's the day that Putin officially announced his invasion of Ukraine. And he and his family are now in southwest Ukraine trying to decide what to do next. Volodymyr, thank you so much for being with us. Um, can you start by telling us where you were when, when you first heard Russia had invaded? Yeah, actually, I was uh, sleeping and I didn't hear any any noise or explosions. You know what uh, woke me? The UPS of my computer, you know, uh, because the lights went off. And I, I and I thought, well, something's going on. And I see my phone where like 10 missed calls from my friend who was already awake, and uh, he told me that, yeah, actually, Putin started uh, uh, launching missiles on Kiev, and I was like, I thought it was like, you know, kind of test or, or something, you know, when you, uh, when your conscious, uh, conscious grabs, you know, the, the idea that it might not be war yet, like, like a last attempt, but then it was obvious, of course, with the news that it started, but we were ready. We prepared, you know, this, uh, what do you call them, like bags where, with all the necessities. And me and, and uh, my wife, we decided that we should leave Kiev, obviously because of, of her, you know, uh, state, because of, of, of the fact that she's pregnant. But we don't have a car, at, like at all. So, yeah, we we found my colleagues who were also like fleeing Kiev, and they had uh, some spare seats in the car. So we we went for it. We like spent half a day in Kiev, and in the afternoon on Thursday we we left. Yeah, by car. And Volodymyr, you're you're sheltering right now in a in a house. I'm not going to tell anyone where it is. Um, yes. We're going to show a few photos from inside that that you sent us. Um, do you feel safe yeah. where you are? Do you do you have food? Do you have what you need? Yeah, sure, uh, we do. It's a big uh, country house, uh, so it has all kind of you know, like uh, conserved foods, like uh, pickles, tomatoes, even some uh, groceries. So yeah, uh, it's really great. Uh, these were some kind people to take us in because we didn't know them before the the invasion. It was like. I, I literally found shelter via uh, social media because I didn't have any other way, actually. Wow. And obviously you want to stay together as a family, but, you know, there's martial law. Ukraine has said that men between a certain age cannot leave the country. You are not allowed to leave the country. Um, if it comes down to it, do, you, yes. do your son and your wife have someplace outside the, Ukraine that they can go to? And if so, if it comes down to it, will they go? Uh, yeah, we decided that uh, we have some friends in Germany and uh, Switzerland, uh, some relatives too, uh, too. So we decided then when uh, the time comes, uh, if it if the war continues, right, and uh, the time comes for her to, you know, give birth, we should uh, consider the option of splitting. But right now, we're not in the mood of leaving the country, not because of, only because of the successes of Ukrainian military, because we really praise them for, uh, for that. We are really glad. But, you know, it doesn't feel right right now because many of our friends uh, got split up. And, um, you know, I, I think at, at these times 
we're practically safe, I guess, but uh, it just feels right to stay together. Yeah. For, yeah. Uh, for the time being, you should know, Jack, that right now in Ukraine, no one has like a, a, a planning limit, like outside of a few hours. Uh, like it's like you don't know what's going to be tomorrow. So right. we, you, you tend to to think of survival right now. You know. Yeah. And Volodymyr, before you go, uh, I do want to ask you about your upbringing because you grew up in Crimea, which was obviously invaded and annexed yeah. by Putin's Russia in 2014. And you, you say that you grew up pro-Russian and pro-Putin, uh, but you had a change of, of heart. Uh, why? Uh, yeah, actually, I was, uh, I was born and raised in uh, Sevastopol, the, that city with the naval base, you know. So everyone was pro-Russian and then automatically pro-Putin because he, you know, had this charisma of a strong leader, of a young man, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, actually, I think it, it was uh, like, I, I come to think of it of a, uh, as, a, as a post-Soviet tr- trauma, you know, the irrational feeling that Russian, Russia and Russians... Oh, it looks like he froze. All right, Volodymyr Kondratiev, uh, we will have him back on the show. We thank him, uh, and we're going to be praying for him and for his pregnant wife and their, and their son. We have some breaking news now. Ukraine's president just accused Russia of committing war crimes. That's next. Then, life as we know it on planet Earth, it could be over. The new warning about the warming Earth. Stay with us. We have some breaking news. We have some breaking news for you in our world lead. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is now accusing Russia of war crimes after a series of rockets hit the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv today. Ukrainian officials say some of the rockets hit a neighborhood near a supermarket, killing at least one civilian, targeting civilian populations is, of course, a war crime. This all comes on the heels of the vice chair of the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, telling me over the weekend that Russia's President Vladimir Putin, quote, has created a system of people not telling him bad news or, or facts that contradict his preferences. Putin also appears to have some neurophysiological health issues, Rubio said. But most telling, said Rubio, is this is a man who has long prided himself on emotional control. His recent flashes of anger is very uncharacteristic and show an erosion in impulse control. French President Emmanuel Macron has also reportedly told aides that Putin seems to have changed in the last couple of years after putting himself in relative isolation due to COVID. CNN's Melissa Bell filed this report. It was only a week ago. A rambling TV address in which Vladimir Putin signaled the start of a war and the abrupt end of weeks of frantic diplomacy. So abrupt, says the French president, that discussions had continued until just a few hours before. So yes, there was duplicity. Yes, there was a deliberate, conscious choice by President Putin to launch the war when we could still negotiate peace. But if the abruptness of the announcement surprised the French president, its tone did not, says a French presidential source who described it as rigid and paranoid, something they say that chimes with what Macron had first noticed during his more than five hours of talks with the Russian president in Moscow on February 7th, when the Russian president struck him as different, stiffer and more isolated 
than he had been in the past. And few Western leaders have seen as much of Vladimir Putin these last few years as Emmanuel Macron. The Russian president was one of the first foreign leaders to visit Macron just after his election in 2017 at Versailles. And the Russian leader visited Macron again during his summer break in the south of France in 2019. And then again at the Elysee Palace in December of that same year. That was the last time that Macron had seen Putin until he met with him in Moscow. What Elysee Palace sources say is that by then, he found himself opposite a man who was much changed. Macron felt that Putin was now on an ideological drift, no longer the man he'd met in December of 2019. By Saturday, Putin was once again making televised remarks, referring to Ukraine's leadership as a Nazi or fascist regime, urging Ukrainian armed forces to seize power, even as the country's Jewish president was defiantly speaking to the world from Kyiv, and Ukrainian forces and civilians were putting up stiff resistance. I think that this guy lost touch with realities, actually. Reality and realities. American realities, Western European realities, Ukrainian reality, and even Russian realities. Because the Russian people, this is clearer and clearer every day, doesn't support this war. By Sunday, another televised address and a further escalation. The Russian president putting his nuclear arsenal on high alert, blaming NATO for its aggressive statements. With this nuclear madness, Putin posed as much great a threat to the world than bin Laden. Even as the Russian invasion slows in the face of Ukrainian resistance, the question is now one of disconnect, even within the Kremlin. Ukraine's foreign minister is saying Sunday that their intelligence suggests that even those close to Putin are against the invasion, a military move that may have devastating consequences for Russia. Jake, there was another phone call today between the French and the Russian presidents. It lasted 90 minutes. Now, the French read out of the call talks about the French insistence on the need for de-escalation. The Kremlin's readout is much more about Putin insisting once again on the need to denazify Ukraine. So a sort of disconnect again between the leaders. The French insist it's important to keep talking. But at the very least, what these phone calls provide is something of an insight into the mind of a man who's been remarkably difficult to read and whose mind the world right now, Jake, would really like to understand a lot better. All right, Melissa Bell in Paris with that report. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss this all with Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan and the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Bill Taylor. Ambassador Taylor, let me start with you because the former director of national intelligence under Obama, uh, retired General James Clapper, said something that reflected uh, a conversation that is really going on, as you know, uh, intensely among intelligence circles in the West right now. Take a listen. I personally think he's unhinged. I, I really worry about his... Uh, acuity and balance right now. And, you know, here's a guy that really has his finger on a potentially on a nuclear button. So that's, to me, bears close watching. Uh, look, I don't need to tell you, as former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Putin's been a murderous thug for, for decades. That hasn't changed. But what seems to have changed is uh, his calculations, his strategy, his emotional outbursts. Do you think that he has lost his mind in some way? 
Jake, I've never met this man, um, but all indications are that he is not in full control of his emotions, of his thought patterns. He's got this kind of almost uh, fierce anger, um, fierce hatred for President Zelensky. President Zelensky, young politician, showing the world what leadership really is, and President Putin doesn't know how to deal with that. President Putin does not understand Ukrainians or this Ukraine. Josh, what is the chance that he's acting this way? You know, the madman theory that we used to say about Trump, like, you never know what he's going to do. He wants to keep world leaders, you know, afraid of him. Is there a chance that that's what he's doing? I'm sure that's part of what he's doing. There's no doubt that over the years, Vladimir Putin has become more erratic. Uh, Part of that is strategy. Part of that is, as Ambassador Taylor said, he's not getting good information. But part of that is that he's accumulated power, uh, total power over the Russian state. So he can afford to do whatever he wants within that state. And, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense that he's suicidal. In other words, it, he, he could be evil without being irrational. So what we have to do is we have to watch his actions. And his actions are that he will escalate and escalate until he finds resistance. That's a rational way of doing business, evil as it may be. So I don't think we can make our policy based on the idea that he's a crazy person. We have to see him as an erratic leader who has ultimate power inside of his own country, uh, who's willing to take risks. And that's not crazy. That's just bad. That's just threatening. And Ambassador, over the weekend, Putin uh, put Russia's nuclear forces on high alert. Here's what um, Senator Rubio, the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, here's how he assessed it. He wrote, Putin's legitimacy built on image as the strong leader who restored Russia to superpower after the disasters of the 90s. Now the economy is in shambles and the military is being humiliated and his only tools to reestablish power balance with the West is cyber and nukes. Do you agree? I think what he's doing there, Jake, is performance. Um, He is, again, trying to intimidate, trying to bully probably President Zelensky, maybe President Biden, with this this rattle, with this rattle of the nuclear saber. So I think this is something, his, his, his nuclear forces are already on alert. That's not a new thing. This is a performance. What do you think about um, the, the idea that there are people within Putin's circle who don't, don't think that invading Ukraine was a good idea? We saw him berate uh, one of his uh, intelligence chieftains in front of the cameras the other day. Is, is this somebody who just won't even listen to a contrary point of view? Vladimir Putin has been in power 10 years longer than Xi Jinping. There is no dissent. He's disabled all of the pieces inside of his own government that could challenge him. Uh, So if you're inside that system, there's no upside in even saying something. So no one would say something. You would die. You'd go to jail. Your whole family would go to jail. So all that means is that we can only follow him. We can only deal with him. All of these side talks, all of these people he's throwing at the Belarusian border to talk with the Ukrainians, they don't have any agency. They don't have any power. All they can do is report back to Putin. So we have to message to him. And that's a combination of diplomacy. It's a combination of military moves. And as he goes up the escalation ladder, we have to be very careful about that, but not allow it to paralyze us. He's playing a game of escalating to see what we'll do in return. And we have to respond proportionally, but not overreact. And that's a delicate and difficult thing to do with a guy who's mass murdering civilians all over Ukraine. Although I I should note, the Biden administration has not escalated our nuclear threat level, which seems to suggest they... That's because they think, and they're right, that while we failed to deter Putin from invading Ukraine, he's still deterred against attacking us. Right. We would still win that war. He knows that. Again, he's evil, but he's not suicidal. All right. Josh Rogan, Ambassador Taylor, good to see both of you. While Russian troops invade Ukraine, in Moscow, police are busy conducting their own crackdowns. Speaking out against the invasion will get you arrested, if not worse. 
We're going live to the streets of Moscow next. Stay with us. We are back with our world lead in Russia's crackdown within its own borders. Russian authorities have now detained nearly 6,000 of their fellow Russians for participating in what the Russian government calls unsanctioned anti-war protests. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now live from Moscow. Nick, what are the penalties for protesting there? Yeah, you can get detained overnight. You can get a relatively small fine. If you get picked up again, the fines and detention go up. But you can end up with a with a maximum of 20 years in jail. You can end up with hundreds of thousands of rubles fine and massive amounts of money, or they were until the ruble tanked today. Uh, so it's a, a serious consequences for Russians. You know, they're warned by the government. If you go out and protest and you get picked up, you can get a criminal record and that criminal record can stay with you for the rest of your life and can impact you for the rest of your life. So, you know, the the Russian government here is making it pretty clear to people, don't come out, don't get arrested, don't protest, don't say what you think about the war, don't try and... uh, you don't try and come against our rule and our word. And they're really, they really are trying to, trying to control the narrative here completely. And Nick, uh, countries worldwide are slapping Moscow with unprecedented sanctions. We've really never seen anything like this. How are people in Moscow responding to this financial meltdown? Yeah, there's, it, it's here and there. It's not affecting people on the street too much. Um, it is. Uh, we try to park our car using a parking app and the Apple Pay wouldn't work. And our producer tried to buy a coffee on the way into work this morning and her Apple Pay didn't work. But at other places, you know, some credit cards are working, some aren't. I think the real problems at the moment are with the leadership. Putin was meeting with his prime minister, deputy prime minister, the head of the central bank, the head of other banks, trying to figure out what he can do. This big rainy day fund, $630 billion dollars has been saving since the last time he invaded Ukraine because he knew he was going to get more sanctions in the future because he probably had an idea about what he was going to do in Ukraine. That rainy day fund isn't accessible to him. Uh, the United States is cutting off the dollar part, the e- EU cutting off the euro part, the UK is cutting off parts and sterling. Don't know if he can get his hands on the gold. That's what he was going to use uh, to keep the country afloat. Now that's been taken away from him. Government, the central bank put up interest rates, doubled them to 20% today. The stock exchange was closed today and it's going to be closed tomorrow. The ruble tanked down 30%. There is a real fear, and this is when it would really hit the man on the street more, that if the stock market opens, the bottom's going to drop out of the ruble and people here really, really will be left wondering what their economic future and savings look like. And that's a problem for Putin. If that happens. All right, Nick Robertson in Moscow, thank you so much. Let's now turn to the southwest region of Ukraine where we find CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh live for us in Odessa, Ukraine. Uh, Odessa is one of the country's most populous cities. More than one million Ukrainians live there. It's along the Black Sea. Nick, Russian forces have been attacking various towns that line the Black Sea. What are people in Odessa telling you about this ongoing threat? Well, there is a deep sense of concern. There has been for a matter of days, Jake, and uh, we've seen the town barricaded, various key landmarks here uh, with sandbags, troop positions put in front of it. A real sense, I think, of people here not quite knowing what possibly could come next. There's a recognition that if uh, Russia wants to control Ukraine, they need to have their hands on this vital 
port city, its economic levers over the rest of the country. It's the maritime access, frankly, for ships, the port, uh, to the rest of the world. We've heard sirens during tonight, certainly, and I think fears that that the moves happening around this area will ultimately impact this third largest city. We were in Kherson, a city far to the east of here, along the Black Sea as well. That, according to a resident I spoke to tonight, now has Russian Tigr vehicles driving in its streets, which would suggest that the balance of power there, after a very intense fight for the bridge near it, that may have shifted. Over the weekend, we were in uh, Mykolaiv. That's also on the Black Sea on an inlet uh, from the larger body of water. A lot of fears there, the, the bridge drawn up, that they were liable to see another Russian assault. That appears to be something that the mayor is warning of again. He's told men uh, in the town to gather for the city's defence. On Sunday night, he said, get Molotov cocktails, organise a circular defence. Fears there that they have a large convoy of Russian armour heading their way, according to the mayor. And here in Odessa, the broader fear that they feel these sirens, the building up of defences, the broader anticipation of the worst must be due to something. Although tonight I'm standing here in the pitch black indoors with a, a, a blackout curfew in place, but a huge sense of foreboding in the air, Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Odessa, Ukraine. Please stay safe. Thank you so much. Coming up, a major milestone in the investigation into the January 6th insurrection. It could have an impact on cases against some of the rioters. Stay with us. In our politics lead, today marks a major new stage in what the U.S. Justice Department is calling the largest criminal investigation in the history of the United States. It is the first trial for a rioter who participated in the January 6th insurrection and pleaded not guilty. Now the Justice Department will lay out a sweeping case against Guy Reffitt, whose own teenage children testified against him. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us now live from the Capitol. Ryan, what are the charges against Reffitt and, and what happened in court today? So, Jake, the Justice Department uh, is uh, accusing Reffitt of five different charges, including obstruction of Congress. They're also accusing him of bringing a semi-automatic handgun here to Congress on January 6th and also uh, for threatening his children uh, to to keep quiet and not testify against him or his role on January 6th. Today in court, it was all about jury selection. They got about halfway through that process. Some 24 people have been eligible uh, to, to participate in the jury. It hasn't been without some complication, though, Jake, because this is a Washington, D.C.-based jury. Many of these individuals watched what happened on television that day. They feel a special connection to it because they are residents of the District of Columbia, but they should be able to seat the jury in totality by sometime tomorrow. And there are hundreds of rioters lined up on the court docket after Refit. What might this trial outcome mean for the rest of them? Yeah, this could have a big impact on many of those trials that are still pending right now. There are 750 total defendants right now. Only about a third of them have already pled guilty. That means that there are 500 still awaiting trial. And if the Justice Department is successful in this prosecution, it could lead to many of them just deciding to not risk a trial and just taking a plea deal, particularly because what the Justice Department is attempting to do here is something unique. It's not often that they are dealing with obstruction of Congress 
terrorist charges, especially in an environment like this one that led to the January 6th insurrection. If they successfully make that case with Refit, it should make it easier to make that case with many of these other defendants, particularly because the jury pool is going to come from that same group of people of people here in Washington, D.C. So, Jake, if they're successful, it could mean a lot more plea deals. If they're unsuccessful, it could mean a lot more trials. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Coming up, a deadline today for America's pastime, which could decide if the upcoming baseball season will strike out before it even gets to the plate. Stay with us. In our sports lead, it is the bottom of the ninth for Major League Baseball, specifically for labor negotiations and whether the team owners are going to allow us a season of baseball. League owners imposed a deadline of today for a new collective bargaining agreement with players or face the cancellation of opening day on March 31st. Joining us now is legendary sports broadcaster Bob Costas. Bob, you and I are supposed to go to a Phillies-Mets game this season, and I have to say it seems like the owners might be willing to blow off the first month of the season. So bottom line, are we going to get to go to that Phillies-Mets game? Is there going to be baseball? Well, they're going to play at some point. Remember when the 94 World Series was lost and the dispute continued into 95, they played a 144-game season and still had playoffs and World Series and all the rest. So we're going to have baseball at some point. Today is the day where the owners have said no agreement by midnight tonight or whatever, and March 31st is out the window. They are continuing now with marathon sessions in Jupiter, Florida. At least that's a somewhat optimistic sign because the last week or so, they have had these ongoing face-to-face negotiations where most of the time since the lockout was imposed on December 2nd, they haven't met at all or there have just been sporadic meetings. So there is some sense of urgency here. There are arcane issues that are better being discussed on the Major League Baseball Network than here on CNN. But underlying all of it is historic antagonism between these two sides. No matter how much they thrive, there seems to be kind of a built-in mistrust, and they can't really see their mutual interest. And that is often an impediment to reaching a reasonable conclusion. And as you suggest, fans are less concerned about these arcane sticking points in negotiations, more concerned about the game on the field where baseball has issues. Yeah, and the owners have said, and they've put something on the table now, at least for consideration, that they have to address baseball's problems, pace of play, lack of action. So among the uh, proposals, a 20-second pitch clock, uh, regulating shifts. You have to have at least two infielders on either side of second base, expanding the playoffs, which would obviously provide more revenue, especially coming from television, and might address some of the players' concerns that some teams are tanking to keep payroll down. If there are more playoff spots available, there might be more incentive to improve, to improve your team. So, and the other is the universal DH, which apparently is coming to the National League. Many people will not like that, but it is something that the Players Association would likely embrace because DHs tend to be high-priced players, and the higher... Uh, the salary for one guy, generally that high tide raises other boats. So those are among the possible on-field things that could change sometime in 2022. And fans obviously care more about that than the economic issues. I'm anti-DH, but I'd just like to see some baseball at this point. Bob, a surprising and not unrelated development today, Yankee Hall of Famer Derek Jeter resigned as CEO of the Miami Marlins. This comes with the backdrop uh, that some teams seem fine with getting the revenue sharing from other teams and not really caring about putting together a decent Mm -hmm. franchise, right? 
Yeah, some teams clearly are just keeping payroll down. The Pirates and the Orioles, for example, may have opening day payrolls, which in the aggregate are less than the money the Mets will pay Max Scherzer alone, which is $43 million in 2022 if they play a full season. But what's tricky here is that so-called tanking can be a legitimate strategy where you strip it down in order to build it up. The Cubs did it and won a World Series. The Astros did it and became a powerhouse. But first, they traded veteran players for prospects, and they hoped that their team would coalesce at the right time. They'd all kind of peak, and they'd have a successful run. Then there are other teams that say they're doing that, but don't follow through on it. And reading between the lines, Derek Jeter, who was committed to winning every day of his baseball life, signed on as the face of the franchise and a minority owner. He understood, okay, we'll get rid of some high-priced veterans. They traded John Carlos Stanton and Christian Yelich. MVP talents got rid of that payroll in return for prospects. And now it appears that as he reaches year five of a rebuilding plan, that he believes the Marlins owners are not willing to commit the funds that he thought they would eventually commit when they got to the pivot point, when the rebuild was beginning or should have been beginning to show dividends in the one loss column. One other point before we run here, Jake, the owners don't mind. They would like to reach a settlement, obviously. But if we lost all of April, it would hurt the players in theory and lost salary more than the owners. It wouldn't hurt the national television revenue. Attendance tends to be relatively sparse, especially in cold weather cities in April and school is still in session. So if they had to take that hit and blow off the entire first month of the season, it's not out of the question, but we have our fingers crossed that cooler heads, as they say, will prevail. Yeah, it's more of a hit for the players who lose one-seventh of their, of their salaries for the year. Bob Costas, always so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. If the world doesn't do something fast, it will mean death. The terrifying new warning about the warming planet. That's next. In our Earth Matters series, today at the U.S. Supreme Court, a major case to decide who can regulate the power sector's planet warning, warming emissions. Republican attorneys general want Congress to regulate the gases. The Environmental Protection Agency says they should wield that power. But Mother Earth is running out of time for us to litigate the climate crisis. And, quote, delay means death. Those are the words of a United Nations official reacting to a new report showing that the planet is barreling toward the key 1.5 degrees Celsius increase where billions of people and other species will no longer be able to adapt to the rapidly changing, increasingly deadly climate. CNN's chief climate correspondent Bill Weir joins us now live. Bill, usually these reports come with even more depressing news that there's nothing humans can do to stop it. Is that true here too? Well, uh, to a point, uh, there are certain things baked in, but how bad it gets depends fully on how soon humanity stops using fuels that burn. That's the basic challenge, uh, at least theoretically. It's much harder in practice as we're seeing. But this is 3,600 pages written by hundreds of Earth scientists from every country really around the world. It's conservative because it needs the agreement of 195 countries. And they essentially say, we have the proof now. Uh, and it's looming even more. A warmer world is a more dangerous world, not just because of bigger fires and, and d- deadlier droughts and bigger storms. It's a hungry and thirstier world because of lack of fresh food and water, uh, scarcity issues for that. It's a more depressing world. This study looks at mental health, the toll that this is having on people who survive these unnatural disasters. And it's a poor world as both the developing world has to brace for things they really can't afford and the developed world has to spend a ton to protect itself. Right. Those refugee crises also, uh, environmental refugees. Um, 
causing potentially uh, big conflicts in the future. How is adaptation already happening in cities that are already prone to flooding, and, and how much does that cost? Well, it depends regionally, right? Out west, they're trying to adapt to life with not enough water, you know, to grow cotton and lawns and, and people. And, and then uh, east, in coastal cities, especially like Charleston, for example, they are raising mansions, literally. This is a 250-year-old mansion. They raised about 15 feet on a series of jacks. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Meanwhile, the city is rezoning as we speak. I talked to Mayor John Tecklenburg about managed retreat. It's up to us to take the comprehensive plan and rework our zoning ordinance um, to reduce density and reduce development rights in low-lying areas. And that's uh, what we're set out to that's do. That's what you're doing. So that 10, 20 years from now, uh, Bill, when those decisions are brought forward about development and they're in uh, areas below 12 or 15 feet above sea level, we're going to say, um, sorry. Uh, no, thanks. We don't want that to occur here. And Jake, this, of course, will affect property values, which affect property taxes, which pay your teachers and your cops and beach towns. And so it is, it is so complicated. But the message here is the sooner communities can get in front of this and brace for what's coming and try to mitigate the worst of the damages, we can control just how painful it gets. And you and I have talked about this before, Bill. Uh, everybody talks about, oh, this environmental bill costs this much money, this environmental bill costs that much money. No one calculates all the wildfires or the flooding or all the future disaster that your kids and my kids are going to have to deal with. Bill Weir, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Tomorrow night, you don't want to miss President Joe Biden's very first State of the Union address right here on CNN. Anderson Cooper in Ukraine and me in D.C. We are going to host the special live coverage at 8 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. You can listen to our podcast if you miss a show. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.